Not too early, not too late. When to file a claim for judicial review. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome to Current Trends in Public Law. This mini-series is part of 39 Essex Chambers Public Law Podcast. In this series, we highlight important developments in public law areas, keeping you informed of changing trends that could matter to you. I'm Catherine Barnes and I'm here with my colleague Adam Bukra. We're both public law barristers at 39. Today, we're going to be talking about two thorny issues relating to timing and judicial review. Definitely a topic that instills fear into every public lawyer's heart. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the last day for filing, when exactly that is, and then also how timing works in relation to policy and legislation challenges. So without further ado, Adam, can you tell us about identifying the last day for filing a judicial review? I'm sure that everyone is going to be familiar generally with the time period for judicial reviews. To work out when that period ends, I think we do want to have a look at the exact wording of the rule. It's in TPR 54.5.1 and it says the claim form must be filed promptly and in any event, not later than three months after the grounds to make the claim first arose. So I'm right that the first requirement is promptness. That's right. It's really important to emphasise the first requirement's promptness. We're not going to go into all of that today, how you assess promptness. It's really fact-specific, but it's possible to file your claim within three months and still be out of time if you haven't filed it promptly. So if there's no way you can file earlier, when then's the last day of the three months? So that's a big question. Uh, If we take an example, you're challenging a decision made on the 1st of August. The question is, is your last day for filing... 31st of October, is that when the three months ends, or 1st of November? Now, I think the answer is 1st of November. But the first big caveat I want to raise is that there's some uncertainty about this. So I would definitely and strongly suggest going for the day before, if if that's at all possible, to avoid a risk to avoid having to have an argument about it. And to excuse having major stress and heart palpitations, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, We don't want our hair to fall out and, you know, we don't want sleepless nights. We've all got enough of those already with this kind of work. Quite. Um, But going back to your example then, Adam, um, how do you get to the conclusion that the last day for filing is the 1st of November? So the first thing you have to do is identify when the grounds to make your claim first arose. To keep it simple here, we're going to take that as the day of the decision in question. Now, the rule says that the claim form has to be filed not later than three months after that day. Now, that word after is important. What that means is that when you're calculating when the three months ends, you exclude the date of the decision. In our example, three months after the 1st of August ends on the 1st of November. I think that a helpful way to try and understand that is to think about how the rule could be worded differently. It could say the claim form must be filed within three months, beginning with the date on which the grounds to make the claim first arose. Uh, That's what it said. In our example, the final day for filing a challenge to a 1st of August decision would be 31st of October. It doesn't say that. And on the rule as it's worded, it's the 1st of November. Right. So the word after is absolutely critical then. Are there any authorities that support your analysis there, Adam? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, A good place to start, I think, 
is the editorial notes in the white book under this rule. They're helpfully, I think, pretty clear. What they say is, as a time limit is expressed to expire three months after the grounds first arose, the day when the grounds first arose, usually the date of the decision or measure being challenged, is not included within the three-month period. They rely on a couple of cases. One is on the application of Bednash and Westminster City Council, which is from 2014. The other one is a case called Zone and Ramba from 2000. Now I'm going to quickly summarise what those cases show. The first one, Bednash. Now, this was a judicial review case. Uh, less helpfully, it's not a decision about the time limit in which to file a claim in judicial review. It's a case about the interpretation of a rule applying to license applications. The case was about a nightclub called Le Pigal, which is described in the judgment as a nightclub and other place of refreshment. How wholesome. How wholesome. Although the judge did want to make um, make it really clear in his introductory paragraph that that's what he'd been told and he didn't actually have any personal experience himself with the nightclub. Anyway. Disappointing. It's a, disappointing. It's about um, an interpretation of this licensing rule. Essentially, the wording is pretty similar to the rule that we've got in CPR 54. It includes the word after. The notice in the case, the, not, the licensing notice had been received on the 2nd of August. The court thought it was pretty obvious that time expired uh, three months later on the 2nd of November. The second case that's referred to in the White Book notes is Zone and Ramba, not a judicial review at all. It's a court of appeal decision in a credit hire case. It's useful essentially because the court of appeal in that case summarises this long line of authorities going back to the 19th century on time periods in legislation and how you interpret them. And what it says is that when the time period is expressed as from or after a specified day, that specified day is excluded from the time period. When it's expressed as beginning with a specified day, that day is included. It always amazes me that there's no authority directly on this point in a judicial review context. Um, are there any other authorities that help us? Uh, there are. There's one that I think is the, the most important one. Again, it's not a judicial review. I'm going to come back at the end to a few JR cases that help to give us an answer, although very unhelpfully, there are two going one way and two going another, and they don't really reason it out at all. Um, classic. Classic, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think there might be an explanation for that in that it's pretty unusual for a decision on this kind of timing point to get to a fully contested hearing with a fully reasoned judgment at the end of it. It will usually be worked out at the permission stage and you won't get to that. Um, full hearing about it. But anyway, so we've got to try and do the best we can and avoid sleepless nights. Uh, the important case I think is helpful is one called Dodds and Walker. It's from 1981, House of Lords. It's about landlords and tenant law. Now, what that case did, first of all, was clarify that reference to a month in a statute is to be understood as a calendar month. Uh, that follows the Interpretation Act. It's actually now also reflected in CPR 2. Uh, secondly, it made the point that we've already seen about calculating a period after the occurrence of a specified date, and it says you exclude the date of that event from the calculation. But most importantly, it found that when the relevant period is expressed in months after a specified date, something called the corresponding date rule applies. Aha, uh -huh. so what's the corresponding date rule? So the corresponding date rule, as a general rule, means that in this scenario, the period ends on the corresponding date in the relevant subsequent month. 
Now that's a bit of a mouthful, but it's actually quite simple to apply in practice. With 1st of August and a three month period, the corresponding date is 1st of November. If it was 15th of August and a three month period, the corresponding date would be 15th of November. So generally speaking, pretty easy to apply and understand. There is an important point to bear in mind, which is that the rules modified when there's no corresponding date in the later month. Where that's the case, you'll go for the earlier date. Now that will happen if you are challenging a decision which is taken on the final day of certain months. For example, if you are challenging a 31st of August decision, when's your final day? Is it the 30th of November or is it the 1st of December? You go backwards in time. So for a 31st of August decision, your final day is 30th of November. And that's an important caveat to this principle to bear in mind. Are there any cases looking specifically at how the three-month time limit works in JR? So there are some cases. Uh, unhelpfully, none of them, I think, are really authoritative. And I think two of them are wrong. Uh, so I'm going to start with the two that I think get it wrong. Uh, the bold first, submission, A Mr. bold Bukra. submission. Uh, no, I do like to start with a bold <laughs> submission. Uh, the first is called Crichton and Wellingborough from 2002. I think it might actually be mentioned in a couple of the textbooks. It was a planning JR when the period for planning JRs was still three months. The decision was taken on 10th of June. The JR was brought on the 10th of September. So on my analysis, that's your last day. Now, the judge doesn't come to a firm decision on this point, but he says he's inclined to the view that the decision was a day out of time, but also says the contrary is arguable. And in any event, he would grant a one day extension. Now, that's obviously not very helpful for my analysis or for trying to be clear about exactly when this date ends. It was obiter in that case. I think it was wrong, essentially, because the judge wasn't directed to any of the authorities or the analysis that I've just explained. I think the decision was probably taken at a time when we didn't have the white book editorial notes pointing us to some of those helpful cases. He was pointed to a part of CPR2 that didn't really help and uh, didn't really apply to this particular scenario. Anyway, that's the first one. The second one that I think also gets it wrong is on the application of Derwent Holdings Limited and Trafford Borough Council. This is a 2009 decision. It was a challenge to a 1st of August uh, decision that was filed on the 31st of October. And in that case, the judge said that the challenge was brought on the last day in which it could be brought. Again, on my analysis, that's not quite right because you'd have an extra day. I think the reason, one of the reasons why the judge gets it wrong in that case is that he describes the JR time limit as requiring claims to be brought within three months. Mm. When it's, that's not what the rule says. I think that was actually what the rule said before the CPR came in when the old rules of court applied. Um, but JRs don't need to be brought within three months. They need to be filed not later than three months after the date of the decision. Now, just really quickly, two cases that I think get it right that mention what the time period is. The first is on the application of Tape Crown and the Crown Court at Oxford from 2018, uh, EWCA CRIM 1345. Now, all you get in that case is at paragraph 38, the court noting that the challenge was to an order of 3rd of October 2017, saying that the JR was filed on 3rd of January 2018, and says that it was filed on the last day of the period. So that's consistent with the analysis that I've set out. And the last case is called Communities United Party and London Borough of Newham, a case from 20, 2013, a permission decision 
Mrs. Justice Lang. She says that the decision under challenge was made on the 21st of June and that the claim should have been lodged by 21st of September, if not earlier. So again, consistent with the analysis that I've set out. Right. So if you're getting to the end of three months then, in light of what you've said, do you have any thoughts on what to do to protect your position? So I think that if you do need to file, if you absolutely do need to file right at the end of the period, if there's any way you can avoid getting into an argument, avoid the risk and the uncertainty that I've just described in some of that case law by treating the final day as the day within three months. So for 1st of August, that would mean filing by 31st of October. If that really is impossible and you do need the extra day, it might be worth thinking about when you get close to the deadline and probably after you've done pre-action correspondence, right into the other side, just to check that they agree with you about when the end of the three-month period is. It could be worth pointing them to uh, the section of the White Book editorial notes that I pointed out, maybe some of the other case law that I've described. Now, getting their agreement wouldn't be determinative, but it would certainly help minimising or avoiding problems later on. Now, they come back and they're difficult and there's a disagreement and you're worried about this, then you can think about um, including something in your claim uh, to address the point. You might even want to consider having a fallback application for a one-day extension in case that's necessary. And if you're doing all of that, hopefully the analysis that I've described, the case law I've described, uh, will give you some of, the, some of the ammunition that you might need. So I think that's probably enough of that on the end of the time period. The next big issue that we're going to turn to is about challenges to secondary legislation and policies. And there's a tricky issue here, isn't there, Catherine, which is about when time starts to run when a claimant wants to challenge secondary legislation or policy. Now, I'd understood it that in the past there was a fairly commonly held view that a secondary legislation or a policy could be seen as an ongoing act. I believe there's been some more specific guidance from the courts on how to approach these kinds of cases. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the key case, I think, is the Court of Appeals decision in Badmus from 2020, um, which was in itself a challenge to secondary legislation. Um, I think I should probably set out a little bit what that case was about so that um, it makes sense to everyone. But essentially, the claimants there were challenging the rate of pay fixed by the Secretary of State for work carried out by detainees in immigration detention centres. And the regime that introduced um, a standard rate of pay for work across all detention centres was itself brought into um, play by secondary legislation. Um, There was a detention services order that was introduced in 2008 and then it was formally reviewed from time to time after that. Um, And essentially the claimants had found themselves subject to immigration detention and then after that challenged the legality of the flat rate that they were paid for work they did between August 2017 and July 2018. So the question for our purposes was when the grounds to make the claim first arose um, on that set of facts. Um, And essentially, the Court of Appeal distinguished between two types of challenge. So the first type was a challenge to secondary legislation in the abstract. And there the court said that the grounds for bringing the claim arise when the legislation first comes into force. 
So what does that mean in practice? Well, typically it's when, for example, NGOs or or public interest groups or potentially commercial entities that don't like particular um, types of legislation, um, they want to challenge the legislation in the abstract. So it's not a decision that applies to them, but the legislation itself. And their time starts to run from when the legislation comes into force. Um, And then your second category of case, type two, that's a challenge by someone affected by a decision made under the legislation. And in that case, the grounds for bringing the claim arise when the individual is first affected by the application of the legislation. Um, And that was the case in Badmus. It wasn't just a challenge in isolation, but how that legislation applied to the claimants in that case. Um, So how did the Court of Appeal apply the principle? Um, Well, it said that the claimants first became affected by the flat rate rule when they initially came into immigration detention, um, because it was at that point that the the claimants would have had standing to challenge the detention services order. Before that, they'd have just been a standard member of the public, a bit like you or I. So that was their analysis. Um, And I I can understand for all sorts of reasons why why the court approached it like that. But it does, to my mind anyway, create problems. Because in theory, you can see a situation where the claimants were subject to immigration detention, but hadn't actually decided to work or been in work for several months, potentially even years. Um, And so you can see, and to to bring a claim within three months of being subject to immigration detention, when you're getting used to that sort of regime, you can see why that poses real practical difficulties. You could lose your chance before you've even really appreciated the problem and how it might affect you. Badness, I think, is a couple of years old now. Have there been any useful examples since then of how the approach in Badmus has been applied? Yeah, there are a few examples. And I think it's quite reassuring to see that it's relatively flexible. Um, I think a useful, particularly useful example is the Court of Appeals decision in Delve, um, another 2020 case. That was a challenge by women born in the 50s to legislation which raised the state pension age for women. So effectively equalising it uh, with men. Um, And the changes were brought about by various um, pieces of primary legislation, um, the latest of which was the Pensions Act 2014. um, And the claimants brought their challenge in 2018. Um, The claimants' argument was that the grounds for the claim first arose when they reached their 60th birthdays and did not at that point receive a state pension. Um, The court didn't like that at all um, and instead found that the claimants had standing to challenge the legislation as soon as the acts in question were passed. Um, And that was because, according to the court, it was inevitable once those acts were passed that the appellant's entitlement to a state pension would be deferred. Um, The other case I think it's worth mentioning is a case called HOTTA, H-O-T-T-A, from 2021, that was one of the COVID challenges. Um, it was a challenge to the mandatory state quarantine in hotels by people returning from red list countries during the pandemic. So just to run through um, what happened there, the relevant regulations setting up that scheme came into force in May 2021. In late July 2021, the claimant learned that her father was dying in South Africa and went to go and visit him, knowing that South Africa was on the red list. 
Um, on the 9th of August, she had to go state quarantine on return and then brought the claim for judicial review challenging the legality of this scheme in mid-September 2021. Um, the Secretary of State tried to argue applying Badmouth that the grounds for the claim first arose when the regulations came into force. So if you like, a bit like a bit like the Delve scenario. Um, but Mr. Justice Fordham rejected that in um, pretty forthright terms. Mm. Um, he said that the grounds first arose when the claimant as an individual was affected by the scheme. So i.e. when she was first um, in quarantine, or he said potentially when she decided to go and visit her father. So in other words, when the rules actually applied to her as an individual. That does seem to be quite tricky to judge. A useful angle seems to be thinking about when a claimant first has standing. Do you think that's right? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the way that the court seemed to be thinking about it. So that, I think, helps us as practitioners. Obviously, it depends on the case, but it's a useful way to think about it. Um, and of course, the other thing to say is that you can think about including an application to extend time if the position is in unclear and if there's a compelling case to do so. And actually, I think because the Badmus um, principle can have quite harsh consequences in certain circumstances, like on the facts of the Badmus case itself, um, I'd have thought that in many sorts of cases, you'd have quite a decent case for having an extension of time even if technically you're out of time it's appropriate maybe in the public interest and so on um, the claimant may have just not been aware of the decision at the time or in a position to challenge it and so on um, so definitely worth um, worth thinking about including um, a meritorious application to extend time I suppose you just got to hope that you get a sympathetic judge well of course but I mean that well, of course, all ever. depends on the judge doesn't it in JR yeah. And does this, does this um, Badmus approach apply to challenges to policy as well? Yeah, so I have to say, I w always assumed that it did. And I know lots of my colleagues thought that as well. Um, and that has now been um, confirmed. There's a recent case called All the Citizens from 2022. That was the challenge to the government's use of WhatsApp for communications and so on. Um, and there, um, it's, it's a short passage towards the end um, of that judgment, but the court confirms that the Badmus approach applies equally to policy challenges and that there's no basis for treating them any differently. Well, I found that all a really helpful explanation of the Badmus line of case law. I hope all of you did too. If you want to know more about the work that we do at 39 Essex, then visit us at 39essex.com. If you want to connect with us on socials, you can connect with the public law team at 39publiclaw. Join us next time for current trends in public law available where you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com. Listener.